Hello and welcome to Start Your Week, your need-to-know cheat sheet for the week ahead in politics. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me today is Alex Andreu. Good morning, Alex. How are you? Good morning, Jav. I'm fine, thank you. Good, good. Alex, we have to start with the situation in Israel and the Gaza Strip this morning. I'm sure many people have seen the just, well, frankly, horrific images coming out of a situation over the weekend. What do we know that has happened? Sure. So, I mean, just to preface this, I'm neither a Middle East uh, expert, nor is there time to go into the very long and complicated history of the region and the rights and wrongs of either side. I would recommend listeners listen to a very good two-part episode of Origin Story on Zionism that was uh, certainly an eye-opener for me in terms of the history of what's happened here. So with that caveat in place, let's talk about what's going on now. Hamas is a Palestinian Islamist group. It's important to say that. It is backed by Iran. It rules the Gaza Strip, which is a 25-mile-long, narrow piece of land, hugely densely populated. 2.3 million people live in that piece of land, and it's sandwiched between, effectively, Israel, Egypt, and the Mediterranean Sea. Hamas, either in total or its militant bit, is designated a terrorist group by much of the West, including the United States, the European Union, and here, the UK. So at 6.30 a.m. Israeli time on Saturday, thousands of rockets, Hamas claims more than 5,000, international news organizations say about half that, were launched from the Gaza Strip into Israel, hitting targets pretty indiscriminately. Shortly after that, hundreds of armed Hamas militants, many on motorbikes, breached the wall into Israeli settlements and started shooting people, again it appears quite indiscriminately, and taking, it is estimated, 130 people hostage, but that number is widely expected to go up. By 10.30 on Sunday morning, Israeli Air Force had started retaliatory strikes, which are still continuing. So we have reports so far of 700 Israeli dead, including more than 200 bodies at a music festival, 2,000 injured, and now 400 Palestinians dead as a result of the retaliations. Those totals will only climb higher. So it could not be a more serious, more traumatic, or more grave a situation. Is it practically impossible to also just predict much further ahead of how this how this situation might play out in any sort of way? In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. So Hamas has called for sympathizers in the region to join it. There have been some rockets fired by Hezbollah in Lebanon, But they have been seen as tokenistic, actually, as they were not aimed at any real targets. They could have been targeted at northern Israeli citizen towns. They were not. They were basically just fired into Israeli airspace and hit nothing. The United States sending military assets to the area, which will be arriving over the next couple of days, to ensure, I think, that the conflict does not spill 
over into other fronts, particularly with Lebanon, Syria, or Iran getting directly involved. So far, it looks to me as if Hamas has been left on its own. This is the unpredictable aspect of what happens, whether it will destabilize the region more generally, which is a real and serious risk. What has been really predictable, however, is Israel's reaction. And this is where I genuinely struggle to understand Hamas' motivation. You know, there's no way they will win this conflict. It is entirely asymmetric, right? And what Israel is doing right now and what Israel will do over the next few days is entirely predictable and will result in huge loss of life. So I struggle to understand what Hamas' political motivation, I understand their you know, religious motivation, but their political motivation in going into this is a mystery to me because it seems that they are getting precisely the reaction that would have been predicted mm. from it. And so one must assume that that is the reaction they wanted, right? I mean, if Israel's reaction is entirely predictable to me, it would have been entirely predictable to Hamas. Yeah. And so I think it is time for people to start not conflating their support for the Palestinian cause with any kind of support for Hamas. Because I don't think, it seems to me that Hamas is not in any way representing the interests of Palestinian people. What have leaders in Israel said beyond this declaration of war? What have they said? What has Netanyahu said, for example, and how might he be reacting to this? I mean, Netanyahu has been pretty quiet, actually. I think they're still considering what action to take. Most experts predict that a ground invasion of the Gaza Strip and an attempt to completely dismantle Hamas is all but inevitable. It will be really tricky for Netanyahu, I think, to balance the calls for the strongest action possible, for almost a revenge action, especially considering the far-right elements in his coalition cabinet, and balance those with calls from the international community for caution and proportionality, who do not want the conflict to spill out into the region, and to, you know, the fact that there is an unknown number of hostages inside Gaza which necessitates a much more surgical approach than might have otherwise been the case, because the last thing Netanyahu will want to do is start killing Israeli hostages inside the Gaza Strip, which Hamas will be sure to put all over the world media. I think it will be a huge reaction, and we will find out in the next couple of days precisely what shape that takes. In terms of for Netanyahu as well, this is surely the major intelligence failure as well, is it not? Monumental failure. I mean, Shin Bet and Mossad are meant to be the most sophisticated intelligence agencies in the region. They are meant to have thousands of operatives and informants. There are thousands of surveillance cameras along that border. There is a so-called smart barrier, which is designed to prevent precisely this kind of incursion. And then you have a planned, coordinated operation 
on the anniversary of a sort of major event and on a Jewish holiday that would have been months, if not years, in the planning. None of this was picked up. Once the dust settles on the conflict, the questions, I think, for the Israeli government will probably bring it down. I think Netanyahu's claim to the moniker Mr. Security is in tatters. I think his career in politics is done. It's Labour conference this week. So Angela Rayner kicked things off yesterday with uh, talking about housing. And Starmer has also spoken on getting the NHS waiting list down already over the weekend. Does this all feel like a positive start? Yes, I think it is. I am particularly interested in Angela Rayner. As you know, she's a politician that I rate anyway. And she's beginning to poll really well and getting good recognition with voters, especially in the so-called Red War. It will be really interesting to see how she is deployed. It seems to me that she feels that Starmer don't know what he stands for gap with a sort of refreshing directness and spirit. And there is something incredibly authentic to her and voters really like that. I really think she's quite the secret weapon for Labour, actually. Do you not think there's some sort of concern maybe there? It fills a gap, but does it also not just highlight... Keir Starmer's weakness a little bit too. It's kind of it can be a bit double edged, can't it? Maybe a little bit, but uh, but I think to counter that, Starmer would claim that the offering he's making to voters is for a team of government that will not chop and change every three months. That will not, you know, you won't have a different housing secretary every three weeks. You're not going to have six education ministers in six years. That here is a stable settled team that has been preparing for government rather than some kind of arrogant presidential offering that has seen actually the huge instability of the last few years under the Tories. So I think that can be turned into an advantage in many ways to say that this is not just about me. This is about a team that I've put together, all of whom are competent in different ways, all of whom offer different things to the table. And we are ready to, you know, walk into Downing Street and make a difference and become a, a professional team. Hmm. Well, that, that sort of team aspect is one clear dividing line we're seeing here. We've also seen Starmer, for example, be firm on ditching Rwanda, even if, uh, hmm. d- depending on whatever the ruling might be. Do you expect over this week to see more dividing lines coming out there and you know should Starmer sometimes be saying some stuff which might be unpopular with some people because you can't please all the people all of the time can you let me answer those in reverse I I I think stuff that is unpopular with some people should maybe raise the bar a little bit on how essential is that stuff to your plan how deeply have you thought about it but it shouldn't be determinative either way I think part of the change the country needs is policy that is formulated on the basis of what is necessary and what is rational and what is affordable, rather than solely on what is popular or what trolls the libs on the other side of the argument, right? Now, specifically in the Rwanda plan, 
I mean, yes, I am. I am very pleased that Starmer is speaking out so strongly against it. Honestly, I think that is setting the bar quite low. <laughs> I think he's particularly smart in the way he's doing it by highlighting not only that it is cruel and and unlawful, but also that it is hugely costly and entirely ineffective. And I think that's where he can really hit the Tories where it hurts. Not only by saying, you know, by expressing moral outrage at the principle behind the policy, but by adding that and also it costs a bunch of money and it doesn't work. So, yes, as you mentioned, the Randa plan is in the Supreme Court this week, starting today, incidentally. I think it's predicted, the hearing is predicted to be three days. The decision will follow weeks after that, I'm sure. Yeah. In many ways, the worst thing that could happen to Braverman is for the court to allow it, right? <laughs> because what happens then? She sends a couple of hundred people to Rwanda. It will make zero difference to numbers, which may be up in October compared to last year, as we're experiencing unseasonably good weather. And I suspect the first few stories about how much it costs per refugee and the first few stories about asylum seekers being mistreated there will only be a matter of months behind. So, like I said, in many, many ways, the worst outcome for this government would be for the scheme to not be judicially resisted any longer, because that would really expose it for the nonsense that it is. On the other hand, that would be at the cost of you know, misery to a couple of hundred people. Turning back to the Labour side of things, so I'm actually up in Liverpool at the moment. I'm beaming in from Liverpool. What should I be looking out for from Rachel Reeves when she when she speaks today? Big announcement will be on planning. Uh, Labour is basically launching a big suite of measures that will make uh, uh, building and projects much more easily. So they're limiting essentially the time and way of objecting to stuff, they're shortening the process, while giving actually local people more of a say, which I think is quite important. So they are increasing, as it were, the rights of stakeholders, but limiting the amount of time it takes to make a decision. They're going to hire a, a lot of new planning officers. They're going to streamline the rules and the consult consultation requirements. And all of it is really aimed at energy infrastructure and telecoms and research labs and factories and stuff like that. And I mean, I think they're absolutely spot on to target that because I think that is something that unites a really large coalition of voters, of businesses, of political leaders on the right, on the left, it really is only upside. It's just becoming really clear, actually, that the business community is embracing the prospect of a Labour government. Not necessarily because they agree with every policy, but because I think they are incredibly tired of the instability of recent Conservative governments. In many ways, businesses and especially investors, they care more about consistency and predictability 
than they care about the actual rules. It could be any policy, it could be any rule, as long as they know what it is, it is clear, and it doesn't change in the next six months. And that's what they've had with a succession of Tory governments and Tory ministers that change every few months. They've had a constant churn of policy, which makes it impossible to invest. And so, again, I would say that that my prediction is that the turnaround, the economic turnaround, can actually be quite quick. I think if Labour establish themselves in their first 100 days in government, if they are elected, as competent and steady and professional, I genuinely think there is a sort of pent-up investment waiting to go out there. There is a sort of pent-up kinetic energy in the British economy that just doesn't want to push ahead because of the bin fire that has been number 10 for the last five years that will instantly spring forward as soon as there is someone they trust in Downing Street. Another small item Reeves is announcing, which I think is just delicious. So Labour are promising they will appoint a COVID corruption commissioner tasked with clawing back public cash lost through fraud. Yeah, so it's something like 72, it's some massive amounts of billions of pounds, isn't it, that they, uh, they're planning to look at? I do think it's really quite a brilliant policy announcement and one that with the second leg of the COVID inquiry gathering pace, and that will be going on this week, by the way, and will intensify in the weeks to come because there will be proper box office witnesses, including Matt Hancock, including Rishi Sunak, including Boris Johnson. Um, So I think the timing of that is brilliant, and I think it will only bring people's minds back to what happened during that period. On the, I mean, you know, obviously Labour are wanting to project this complete sense of calm on all fronts. Is there any chance of some sort of fireworks? I mean, Keir Starmer's speaking later on in the week. Is he going to, you know, do anything that's going to create any real drama of any sort of kind? Or is it just going to, you know, is it, it's his moment, isn't it, to, to shine in some way? Do you expect to see fireworks there or anything of some sort of spark? Okay, so when it comes to policy announcements, in many ways, Starmer can't really make the sort of speech that Sunak made last week, where he just promised truckloads of jam tomorrow, with no one questioning really how is he going to fund that. So I think what Starmer will do is limit the policy announcements to stuff that is, in many ways, cost-neutral, right? So if you look back at what Blair and Brown were promising at the equivalent stage pre-election in 96, it was things like independence for the Bank of England, right? Yeah. A hugely significant measure welcomed in many quarters that actually costs nothing. And so I think that's what Starmer needs to do. He needs to find big policy announcements And I think appointing a a sort of fraud commission to claw back money that's been 
basically fraudulently taken from government contract is exactly that kind of announcement. It costs nothing and it creates possible revenue for government. So I think you will limit it to that and will limit it to values. I think Starmer's speech will not be a, a sort of barrage of tiny policies about potholes like Sunak's was. I think it will be about who he is and what values he's represent. And I think that is more useful, actually, for, for an opposition party. I think that is what people want to know. That is what people want to be reassured about. They want to know who you are. They understand that events will come that will basically upturn any sort of plan that you have. And they want to know the guide, the moral guide that you will use to react to those situations. And so, you know, Labour are stuck in this sort of situation where if they announce X, either everyone goes, that's not enough, like they did with the NHS announcements. You know, that's not enough. You're not even going to touch the sides. Or if the plan is bigger and more ambitious, the question is, how will you pay for it all? Will you tax puppies? And so they're sort of stuck between the ro this rock and this hard place, and he's smart to just go on values, and I think that's what he, he will do. I'm quite tired of a media narrative that is sort of hooked on labor infighting, that it reports any whiff of it in a totally disproportionate way. I mean, I watched the Sunday programs, and they were all introducing their item on the Labour conference with, like, it wouldn't be Labour conference without a row. It's like, based on what? <laughs> I mean, Sharon Graham rightly trying to pull Labour a bit more to the left and Lord Mandelson disagreeing. Come on. <laughs> you think that's a row? Of the last five PMs, not a single one has completed their term. The previous three have been deposed. That is a row. <laughs> not the left and the right of a party politely disagreeing on policy. Yeah, it's, it's really not reflected of the, the chaos <laughs> that we've seen elsewhere, is it? Quite. <laughs> no, no. And, and I think in, in many ways, that's what Labour want. You know, Labour want a, a conference that will go largely almost unnoticed. You know, they want their key policies to get out there, but they don't want it to be a media circus. They don't want it to be an exciting conference. That's not what they're offering to voters in this country. It's not, ooh, vote for us and there'll be more excitement. Is vote for us and you can stop worrying about what cock-up is coming next down the line and actually concentrate on living your life. That's what people want bring back boring politics i say alex thank you for joining me for start your week this morning my pleasure listeners if you enjoyed the show remember that you can back us on patreon we're a 100 independent outfit with no big media backing and your support is what keeps us going for three pounds a month you'll get episodes ad free and early just search bunker patreon podcast to find out how or there's a link in the show notes i'm jacob jarvis and thank you for listening to the bunker start your week Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andreu. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. 
The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production. Music